Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 52. I'm Jim Cornell from the Biotech and we've already passed the longest day, the rain is back and the summer holidays start for schools here in Scotland in about one hour's time. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is podcast number 52. And as there are 52 weeks in a year, and we skipped a couple over the Christmas period, then that means that we're well into our second year of the podcast. Today is June the 30th, so we just squeezed in our topic for the podcast today, because it would be a bit ridiculous to do a podcast on a June Awareness Month in July. Although it wouldn't be the first time that I did something ridiculous. June the 30th is also the day of the Tunguska event in Russia, the biggest impact on Earth, at least since humans have been around, or at least that we know of. It's also why today is World Asteroid Day. Of course, that happened in 1908, so that was 115 years ago. I'm sure there will be souvenir t-shirts for the 125th. It's also the day in history that the first emergency phone number was introduced in London, and that number is 999, which we still use today in the UK. I've no idea what they did before that. I guess it really wasn't that necessary before phones were invented. You just ran outside and shouted. When we had rotary phones, 999 always seemed unnecessarily long, and I wondered why it wasn't 111. Not that I ever asked, until now. June the 30th was also the first day in 1972 that a leap second was added to time. And so far, apparently, there have been 27 seconds added. Anyway, June is Anti-Phospholipid Syndrome Awareness Month, so we're just in the nick of time. I think it's good to highlight some of the conditions and diseases through the podcast that aren't quite so well known, giving them a little bit of recognition. And so our guests on the podcast today are Tina Pullman, the president of the APS Foundation of America, to give us some background on what APS is, and Dr. Jason Knight, who leads a team researching APS at the University of Michigan. And now it's time for the news you may have missed over at labiotech.eu. Of course, it's also possible that you have read them all and you haven't missed any of them, so you can just fast forward and get those 27 leap seconds back. Not that I'm sure that it works that way. AbbVie has taken a step forward in Europe with its migraine drug. We had an article on animal health biotech companies and another on laying the foundation for the future of personalised treatment. Actimed Therapeutics raised £5 million to advance its lead program for cancer cachexia. GSK's gonorrhea vaccine has been fast-tracked. And UCB's Myasthenia Gravis drug has been given FDA approval. We had an article on the promise of immunotherapy for autoimmune diseases. A new platform cuts time, engineering and selecting genome editors. And we had an article on how small particles will deliver tuberculosis drugs to the lungs in the future. Centigene and Lifera are forming a Saudi Arabian joint venture. We had an article on four big events in Southeast Asia. And Vesalius Biocapital is investing 95 million euros in life science companies. The FDA has given orphan drug designation to Cellcentric's multiple myeloma drug. 
An AI program has found multiple influenza drug targets. We also had something on glycobiotechnology, and you can read all of these and many more at labiotech.eu. All right, it's on to APS. When we put the list together of all of the awareness days, weeks and months, there were a few that I admit I had no idea what they were. And in June, APS, or antiphospholipid syndrome, was one of them. APS is also referred to as APLS or APLA in the US, and formally it was called Hughes syndrome or sticky blood in the UK. It's a rare autoimmune disease, but of course the best people to talk about that are those suffering from it. And Tina Pullman is not only someone who has APS, she is also the president of the APS Foundation of America, which was founded in 2005, and so she can tell us more about it. Antiphospholipid syndrome. Basically what APS is, it's an autoimmune clotting disorder. It's an autoimmune disorder in which the body recognizes certain um, normal components in our blood as foreign substances, and it produces antibodies against them. And patients with these antibodies may experience things like blood clots and things like heart attacks, strokes, and miscarriages. APS may occur in people with systemic lupus and other autoimmune disorders, and it can happen in otherwise healthy individuals. One way our immune system fights infections is by making antibodies. And antibodies are proteins in the blood and body fluids that bind to make foreign invaders like bacteria and viruses. And it helps the immune system destroy and remove them. But sometimes the immune system doesn't function properly. And it makes antibodies against normal organs and tissues in the body. So it starts basically attacking them. These self-reactive antibodies are called autoantibodies. And the autoantibodies in APS were originally thought to recognize certain phospholipids, fatty molecules that make up part of the normal cells, hence the antiphospholipid antibodies. And it's now known that most of the autoantibodies in the APS patients actually recognize certain blood proteins that bind to phospholipids not the phospholipids themselves. So two blood proteins that are the major targets of antiphospholipids are beta-2 glycoprotein 1 and prothrombin. So I know it's a lot that I just spit out, but basically it comes down to APS is an autoimmune clotting disorder. Is it genetic or is it something that you can develop later in life? It's not genetic in the sense that it's attached to our DNA, at least not that they have found in looking at the people's DNA that they have collected so far. Does it run in family trees? Yes, it does run in family trees. But has there been people that get it out of the blue and no other people in their family have a history of autoimmune disorders or anything like that? Yes. So, I personally think, and again, not a doctor, that there is definitely some sort of hereditary component. Do I see families that definitely have something going on with them? Yes. But I would think by now, as many genetic studies they've done, you would think they would have stumbled on some DNA that would have connected it. 
And what about like the quality of life? What if for people that have it? Um, the quality of life. So it depends on how bad your APS is. APS is kind of one of these snowflake diseases. Not all cases are the same. My APS is going to be different than this person's APS and this person's APS and this person's APS. This person's APS could be really, really bad. And this one could only have problems when they're pregnant. This one may have one clot and they were done and they're living the bestest life. And this person over here could be having catastrophic APS and never really fully recovered. And another person, it could have caused their death. So I guess it depends what person you are. Most people are doing fairly okay. So as long as your clots are under control, the serious stuff is pretty much under control. But a lot of us do have problems with fatigue and brain fog and some other autoimmune issues. But for the most part, most of us are doing okay. That's good. Could you tell me about the APS Foundation? Is it global or is it just US? And When we, the founders of this organization, when we were diagnosed with APS, there wasn't a foundation in the United States dedicated to APS. And we started out with just an online support forum and a website called APS Information because we wanted a central area to store our information. And then our website caught the attention of another already formed organization and some researchers at some other medical facilities across the U.S. and which got us talking like, well, maybe we should be doing something. And once we started getting recognized, we decided to start our own nonprofit so we could bring the much needed attention and support to awareness in the United States which brought us to June 9th of 2005. Our vision came to reality and the APS Foundation of America, um, the APSFA, as we called it for short, was officially formed for solely dedicating APS awareness in the United States. However, we have been doing awareness now in Canada. And when asked, like we have done conferences internationally and we're doing this podcast, obviously, for an overseas audience. So we do reach out and social media is a great venue to get international audience as well. So we have been reaching out that way. Since then, we have been grown by leaps and bounds every year, helping thousands of patients, not only in the US, but worldwide. And I think we are meeting our missions. Do you help with research and funding or is it just helping patients? Actually, we do help with research and funding. We support research because we are volunteer run and our funding is through public donations. Without the generous public donations, we could not continue to do what we do for our patients and families through our organization. In 2022, we were able to, for example, we were able to provide six scholarships to the Sylvia Perangeli Young Scholar Award at the 17th International Congress on Antiphospholipid Antibodies. And those scholarships are for the young researchers so they can continue doing the research in APS. And then we're invited to the 18th International, which will be in Kyoto, Japan, to provide more scholarships for new researchers, young researchers. I'm not sure if we'll be attending in person. We may, may just be attending virtually as much as I want to go to Kyoto. 
luckily attending these conferences allows us to build a good one-on-one relationship with physicians and researchers and APS patients around the world. And we get our voices heard. In the past, we've donated money to research groups such as like the APS Action, CARA, which is a pediatric group, APSCOR and the Rare Thrombosis Disease Consortium, Genetic Alliance, and Eudorus, which is in the United Kingdom at ARDA Autoimmune Summit. And we've also sponsored medical students to attend specialized training dealing with APS. But we've never raised like money for specific research in the form of a grant. It's a little bit out of our reach right now. Do you have any figures how many people in the U.S. have it or globally? or One in 2,000, actually. Um, one in 2,000 people have APS in the United States. There was actually a clinical trial or they did a record search and figured out the statistics on how many people as of tw- uh, 2019, one in 2,000 Americans. Um, it's the number one cause of strokes in young people. of all blood clots in large veins, which are called deep vein thrombosis, including blood clots that go to the lungs, which are pulmonary embolisms, are due to APS. And one out of five women with recurrent miscarriages have antiphospholipid syndrome. And then one third of strokes occurring in younger people under the age of 50 are due to APS. And 75 to 90% of those affected by APS are women. So that's, it's obviously a big women's issue, but it seems to be growing more in in men. I think it's starting to be taken more serious. 40 to 50% of the patients with lupus also have APS. Is it easy to diagnose? I guess when it's a rare disease, quite often it takes a long time for doctors to figure out what people have got. Yes and no. The criteria is easy to follow, but some of the blood tests are hard to interpret. And what is happening within the medical community, there is people that are underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed. So you would think that it would be if you have simple check boxes that it would be easy to diagnose, but it's not. And there are some subclinical symptoms that aren't on the clinical criteria that some doctors use as actual criteria and use them to, to diagnose. And some things are changing within the criteria. So hopefully things will clear up on that end. But in some sense it is, and in some sense there's clear-cut cases, and in some cases there's a little bit of muddy water. But for the most part, it's something easy to test for and fairly easy to diagnose. And what are the current treatments for it? Right now, the golden standard is warfarin, if people have had clots. If not, some doctors do put on a patient on baby aspirin. There are other anticoagulants on the market currently, but studies on um, APS patients show that they're not safe for our population as we uh, clot on them. So yeah, that wouldn't be so cool. There are other medications for other autoimmune symptoms that like, for example, Plaquenil and even up to immunosuppressants. It's not like an automatic drug that you're placed on right away. And like I said earlier, there is no real cut and dry formula. Like each patient automatically gets this. It's again, unique, like a snowflake. No one is exactly the same. 
for example, I have APS and lupus. So I'm on warfarin. I'm on plaquenil and Avera, which is an immunosuppressant. APS Awareness Month. How important is it to have awareness events like that? Um, Awareness Month is important. Awareness Month is something our organization created. As we realized, there was no awareness really happening anywhere on a global scale. Um, No public awareness, no education, other than support groups that were largely closed to the public. Um, We decided to change that. We already had marketed a color, which is burgundy. We decided to pick a month. We looked at what awareness happened in, in what months and went with June. Eventually, we created a mascot, which is the dragonfly. And for the first couple of years, it was hard getting other groups on board. Now we have other groups on board, organizations, researchers, businesses on board with us. Thanks largely to social media and the collaborations that we have built along the way, which is great. Now we're getting, you can actually search APS Matters and some of our hashtags and you will get a slew of our APS awareness stuff out there and see that June is actually paying off. It's not a frustrating headache like it was in 2005. It's good that it's evolved and that it's uh, doing good things. As far as research is concerned, is there a lot of research taking place right now? Actually, considering rare diseases don't get funded very well, I would say there is. I will add that COVID kind of helped us get some research done. There was a blessing for antiphospholipids research with the antiphospholipid antibodies popping up in COVID patients. APS researchers got a needed boost in funding from the NIH to do research and find out that connection. Was there a connection? Were these true APS patients? How were these antibodies connected to COVID and all of that? They found some interesting things. Is it going to lead to some better treatment? I do know it has led to more studies. I would refer the listeners to clinicaltrials.gov for a full listing of what clinical trials are happening for antiphospholipid syndrome or any other clinical trial near you in the United States. Does that mean that you're kind of optimistic about the future for people with APS and you think there'll be a cure at some point? I'm pretty optimistic down the road. I mean, will I see a cure in my lifetime? Maybe. Do I see better treatments on the horizon? Yeah. Do I see a anticoagulant that we don't have to have blood tests and that won't cause us to clot? Yes. Do I see something that will rein in the antibodies? Yes. So I see better treatments for us. The side stuff like the brain fog and the fatigue, I see them working on stuff for that too. So I do see some better things coming on the horizon for us. It's not all blood clots. There's a lot of other things that come along with APS that a lot of us complain about and they're working on that too. And if we can get rid of some of those things, that would be quality of life as well. Yeah, exactly. Because I think quality of life, it's hard to kind of say what it means to a lot of people. But even if it means going to the hospital less or less blood tests or less treatments, I think anything that improves quality of life is a good thing. Exactly. You know, like yesterday, my brain fog. I couldn't think of farmer's market because my brain wouldn't fit it out. 
and how dumb I felt, you know? So it's things like that, that it was just, this is what happens to us. And we get terrible fatigue. And it's not like the fatigue that you can take an, an hour nap and it will go away. It's just like you have this fatigue that just never ends. And in my case, I always feel not good. It's not just a cup of coffee because the coffee doesn't work. <laughs> you know, it's those kinds of things where you can actually go for a day and do something and not be tired for a week because you had a fun day or did something for a day and paid the price for it. Some of this is having an invisible illness and people aren't seeing what's going on inside of us. And then it's also, you know, you're always tired. So yeah, there, and that's the frustrating thing of having, you know, a chronic illness. That's part of our awareness. Like this is what we go through. To talk a little more about APS from a scientific viewpoint is Jason Knight, Marvin and Betty Danto Research Professor of Connective Tissue Research and Associate Professor, Division of Rheumatology at the University of Michigan. Jason leads a team looking at APS, so is perfectly qualified to tell us more. If we could talk about APS and what is currently available as treatment, Yes, thanks for asking me to talk about APS, which is one of my favorite topics. I think if we talk about blood clotting and APS, this is where we still primarily direct people towards a class of drugs called vitamin K antagonists. In the U.S., the example of that is warfarin. And there have been some newer and less cumbersome anticoagulants uh, to take that have come on the market, but there have been concerns that those are not highly effective for all people with APS. And so we are still directing people towards this older drug warfarin as much as we can. I mean, the other place that we have fairly set approach to treatment is in the setting of pregnancy where you know, warfarin does not mix with pregnancy. It's contraindicated. But in those folks, we typically use the combination of low-dose aspirin and the injectable blood-sending drug called Lovenox. So those are, I think, two places we can say we have fairly standard approaches to treatment. Of course, with that first one, warfarin, it is a cumbersome drug to take. And, you know, it's difficult conversation when someone is in their 20s and you're kind of pitching them that as far as we know right now, uh, we have to say something like, you'll be on this blood thinner the rest of your life. Um, when I do have that conversation, I try to you know, also point out that I think there's room for improvement and that we hopefully will get smarter about treatments as we go along. But that's kind of the current lay of the land. And you mentioned warfarin. It's, as you said, quite old. What's the issue been with coming up with? Is it because it's a rare disease or what are the issues? Right. I think there are a few ways to think about it. One would be can we find an anticoagulant that's just less cumbersome to take that works for, you know, anticoagulant is a synonym for blood thinner, but can we find a drug like that that would work for people with APS? And that's where this newer generation of drugs, when they've been tested, they have more specific effects, which potentially makes them easier to monitor and reduces some of that cumbersomeness that I was mentioning. But maybe that more targeted effect does not work as well for uh, APS as the broader effects that we get with uh, warfarin. 
but I think there's still hope that we could find a less cumbersome blood center that would be effective. Or can we get smarter about identifying the subgroup of people with APS that we feel pretty good with using one of the newer drugs? And then at least for that subgroup, we could have another option for them. If we talk about the longer term view, I guess one would wonder if we're going to be indefinitely treating this autoimmune disease with blood thinners. It is appealing to think there's something we could do closer to the source of the problem, which is the immune system. And yeah, that's where I think I'm excited that we could be in a better place 10 and 20 years down the road than we are right now. What kind of research is going on in the field? Well, I think there's a few things, and maybe they do not necessarily synergize to getting us to a new approved treatment uh, as fast as possible. But I think one thing we see across a lot of autoimmune diseases is that there is quite a bit of person-to-person variability. So if I'm teaching about the diagnosis to the medical students, I try to make it seem kind of cohesive so they can get the big picture. But then when you're confronted with 100 people in the clinic, like really each one looks different than the next. And we kind of define people's situation by listing off you know, the bad things, if you will, that have happened to them, like this and this and this event. And of course, what would be a lot better is if we could get smarter about being proactive, like um, we understand who may have special risks for certain complications, and we get smarter about how to prevent those. I think that that subgrouping, of course, is maybe not as appealing if you're you know, a pharmaceutical company trying to develop the next treatment. You'd like your treatment to be effective for as many people with a condition as possible. So I think one area of research, including what my group is working on, is trying to get smarter about understanding these subgroups based on, you know, molecular features, not just the description of the clinical events. If you're interested, I could tell you where I do think some people are poking around with different treatment possibilities. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting to find out because we hear so much about the use of artificial intelligence in drug discovery and gene therapy and CRISPR. Is there anything that lends itself particularly well? Well, yeah, I think we could go a few different directions with that conversation. I mean, I think one aspect of APS is that you could say there's certain autoimmune diseases where we find autoantibodies in the blood and we use them like for diagnosis purposes, but it's not so proven, you know, that antibody is truly the bad actor that is the main driver of the disease. But in APS, like, you know, some other diseases you may have heard of, like myasthenia gravis or ITP, like these are diseases where the antibodies pretty clearly are driving the clinical features. And so when I talk about treating more at the source, I think we have one marker that if we could find a way to make it go away, you know, that could you know, eventually be equivalent to a cure. And so I think, you know, what I try to keep my eyes open to how people are beginning to treat some of these other antibody-mediated diseases. We have a trial that just opened at University of Michigan, and there's going to be some other sites in the U.S. for a drug called daratumumab, which is a drug currently approved in this country for treatment of multiple myeloma because goes after a particular type of white blood cell called the plasma cell, which in multiple myeloma is the cell that has the cancer, if you will. But in other people, we know this is the cell that produces antibodies. And so, you know, with that trial, we're suspecting that we can give a hard reset on antibody production. 
And then we are going to see what the repopulation looks like after treatment with the drug. Do we see antibodies come back? Which they probably will with some time course in most people, but maybe in a subgroup, they wouldn't. I think that's going to be an important thing we learn. If they do come back, then you could imagine the next study could be to cause the depletion and then potentially follow that stronger drug, daratumumab, with something milder that might keep the immune system kind of more homeostatic and less autoimmune. I've heard a lot of chatter in terms of other types of drugs people are thinking about around a class of drugs called neonatal FC receptor blockers. So this is kind of getting deeper into understanding the immune system, but this is a antibody receptor that is necessary for antibody recycling. Like our antibodies are proteins circulating in the blood and they actually have a longer half-life than you would expect for most proteins. And that's because the cells that line the blood vessels are often sucking them up, but then recycling them and spitting them back out into the bloodstream, which would not necessarily happen with other proteins. And so by blocking this recycling, you can drop antibody levels, including the levels of autoantibodies. So, you know, this is something we've seen done in myasthenia gravis, and I think could have some hope in APS in terms of getting those antibody levels down to where the risk of uh, them causing problems becomes less. If you think about really novel things that are a little farther down the road and yeah, maybe a little fancier is... I know there has been interest around uh, CAR T cells, at least in uh, rheumatology. This has gotten hot in the last few years. CAR T cells is where we engineer someone's uh, a type of white blood cell called the T cell. So we take it out of the body, kind of re-engineer it and put it back in. And these T cells potentially seek out bad actors in the body and eliminate them. And this can be done at a high level like it is in cancer where you know, it's kind of a pretty big gun, if you will, in terms of it has a pretty strong effect on the immune system. It's going after fairly promiscuously, you know, major classes of cells, like all of your B cells could be eliminated by this type of approach. But I think there's a future where it could potentially get a lot more specific. So could you put these cells back in and program them so they go after only the subgroup of B cells that are prone to putting out autoantibodies eventually? So instead of, you know, really pushing down the immune system in a big way, it would really be a much more targeted uh, approach. And so I don't know how easy that was to follow, but to me, that's kind of the next generation of therapeutics where we're really bringing the most modern stuff to bear. And there's not a perfect example of that yet in clinical practice, to my knowledge. So yeah, that makes it a little futuristic, but I think APS, because we understand pretty well the key autoantibodies, we have a target that we know is pathogenic and that we can watch in terms of treatment response. It is a fairly uh, attractive one amongst the autoimmune diseases. What kind of work are you doing in this area? I am trained more as a, um, we would say, bench researcher or lab researcher. So over the years, you know, my group started out looking at a type of white blood cell called the neutrophil that had not been deeply uh, interrogated in APS, but we were noticing in the literature that it was popping up in a lot of other blood clotting disorders. And so, you know, I think we have shown that that type of cell is part of the puzzle, but increasingly I'm seeing, and I think kind of a direction I'm trying to take my research group is this idea of more smartly uh, subgrouping patients 
that's where we have so much more technologies than we used to in terms of things like, well, whole blood transcriptomics, where we're looking at gene profiles across the whole blood, but also being able to now do that at a single cell level where we can figure out how specific populations of immune cells in the blood might be uh, changed in APS versus healthy people. And even through sampling uh, tissues, we have a project right now where we are biopsying the skin because we want to get some of those authentic blood vessels in the skin to begin to characterize. It's a place that is relatively unrisky to biopsy, and we can use some of these modern techniques to really go deep with our understanding of what individual cell types are doing. And so I think that goes to this idea of getting smarter with understanding the subgroups of APS so we can identify which people must stay on warfarin because we can tell that's the only drug that's going to work for their flavor of APS versus the other group that could go on an easier to take uh, anticoagulant, but also under hopefully understanding what subgroup of people where blood thinning treatments is not enough, that we need to be bringing anti-inflammatory or immunosuppressive treatments you know, into their treatment regimen to hopefully keep them as healthy as we can for uh, for as long as we can. So I think that's my big focus for the next five and 10 years is wanting to continue to make the best use we can of, you know, whether it's blood or other tissues that people who see us in the clinic are very graciously willing to donate for our research. And I think this is a shift. I mean, there was a different era where we were trying to do as much as we could with you know, we say tissue culture, where we study the you know, cells in the Petri dish, if you will, or even using animal models. But, you know, I think we're just seeing that new technologies, in my opinion, we can make the most progress by going as deep as we can into the patient characterizations. And when we do see differences between patients, not uh, kind of smoothing over that, but really trying to lean into it, to, um, understand why APS comes out this way in this person and comes out a different way in another person. It must make clinical trials more challenging. Right. I think, uh, as I hinted before, it is a problem, I think, across kind of all of the diseases that we deal with. So I'm a rheumatologist, and it's a common issue in our field. And we're smacked in the face with it in the clinic. I mean, you can take a disease that we have developed a lot of approved treatments around, such as rheumatoid arthritis, but in your first week of working as a rheumatologist, you would see that you know certain drugs work for certain people, and we're still mostly doing a trial and error to identify which one for which person. And so I think we just have to all kind of see the reality that we're not going to find a single drug that works across at least these complex uh, systemic autoimmune diseases. And so it's just going to need to be part of it, I think, that we have to think subgroups. And when there are clinical trials done, I think doing the best we can to extract mechanistic endpoints and make sure the data are there to do kind of subgroup analysis uh, after the fact, because I think any drug that we try, you know, is not going to work for everyone. You're mentioning the fact that what you'll be doing in the next five, 10 years, what do you think that the um, prognosis is for people with APS in the next, I don't know, the short term and the long term? Yeah, that's an important question. I don't want to um, paint too negative a picture. I mean, I think still a lot of people with current treatments do well, and that's because a lot of progress has been made over the last several decades. I mean, we're clearly better at managing people during pregnancy than we used to be. 
you know, even as bits, I mean, it's a frustration learning that, you know, warfarin is the better treatment, but, you know, it's also good information to have. That's a place that we've made progress. And I think we are helping people stay healthier by having that understanding and recommending that as our first line treatment. So I think one place we need to do better is around the drugs, as we've kind of been talking about. But I think a second place is just the awareness of the diagnosis. And another thing we're trying to work on in my research group that is not as much my background, but I've just seen the need by seeing patients in the clinic is trying to have a little more of a community-engaged approach to our research or patient-centric where we are trying to systematically kind of ask people what they see as the unmet needs because I have my own ideas. And some of it's based on conversations, anecdotal conversations I've had. But I think that's a goal to do it systematically. Like, are there particular types of education that we're really missing the mark on? Are there rehabilitation strategies that might be especially effective for APS? I mean, as I mentioned, it's such a reactive diagnosis. And when I say reactive, I mean, by the time we make the diagnosis, something pretty bad has typically happened to a person, whether it was a very serious blood clotting event or a pregnancy loss. And I mean, so there's always trauma being dealt with in this area. And I don't think, you know, we're strategic about how we approach that. And so I think that's another unmet need. And if we think about education, it's not just getting all the words out to the people living with APS, but, you know, also to other types of doctors who are often on the front lines. Like, I guess people would call me an APS expert because I see so many patients with this diagnosis, but it's basically never that I'm the one that's cracking the case. You know, it was always uh, someone out in the community or in a different specialty that had the idea that something didn't seem quite right here and that this additional testing needed to be ordered. So that's one of the reasons I try to take advantage of opportunities like this that the word about APS may get out to a more uh, general audience. And so I think that's really important and a place we need to do better as a field. And I think will ultimately lead to better outcomes for people because we will get earlier diagnoses. And so I think it will feed forward to help uh, people as well. I was going to ask you about that because obviously it's APS Awareness Month. And that's great for sort of the organizations that are raising awareness, getting money, getting it out there. But is it also important in the scientific community having the awareness events? Yeah, I think so. I think it's um, a place that does make a difference on, you know, social media, for example, where yeah, a lot of both doctors and scientists have some uh, presence there. And that's increasingly where they're getting some of their uh, information I think, though, it's a place, as you kind of point out, that each year we can try to think how we might do better and make sure awareness is reaching the right people. I think fundraising is another great point for these rare diseases. I mean, if you look at like the big national funders, like NIH may have a small portfolio of grants that they're funding, but yeah, I think more fundraising by foundations and others that could generate even more research it just has the opportunity to make, a, I think, a real difference. I mean, someone can give a small amount of money to cancer research, which is a, a definitely noble thing to do, but there's already lots and lots and lots of money there and lots and lots of funding from national organizations or government organizations like NIH. So if we could unlock just one additional uh, research study for APS that we would not have been able to do otherwise, it's really important. So I do think a donation can go farther in this space just because there's clearly a lot to do and, and not enough being done right now. 
And because of the work that you do, are you optimistic long-term that there'll be better treatments? I don't necessarily say a cure, but you know, improving quality of life for people with APS. I am optimistic. I think, yeah, I could say a few things. I think one thing I've seen is that APS did get some extra attention around the COVID pandemic. And that's because a subgroup of people with severe COVID, at least in the early days of the pandemic, when so much intensive research was being done on those early patients, a subgroup of them do get these antiphospholipid antibodies formed in their blood, likely temporarily, probably they go away once the COVID uh, goes away. But that did shed some additional light on APS. And it's been nice to see that. I think yeah, the recognition is better than it was if we went back to 2019. And so that gives me hope that there are receptive audiences out there for the message we're trying to sell about APS. And I do think better treatments are coming. And I hope, you know, one of the things we're doing here at Michigan, and there's some other places like this, is I think we're working hard to train the next generation of APS researchers you know, very um, young scientists and young physicians are taking advantage of some of the research we have in our group to learn about APS more deeply. And then hopefully at least some of those folks will end up with APS as a part of their future research career. And we will continue to grow the interest until, um, yeah, I think eventually a cure. There's no reason that shouldn't eventually be possible. I'm just not sure what uh, timeline. I think what's much more realistic if we talk about 10 years from now is that we will have at least for a subgroup of people, more targeted ways to treat APS, that there might be someone that today we tell them you're on blood thinner for life, but we'll have a different thing to tell them in 10 years. So that's the first step and you know, something I'm really excited about. Those will be much more fun conversations to have than the ones we have nowadays. That's absolutely great. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we hadn't? I think, again, I would just say thank you to you for having the interest in this topic and uh, share it with your audience, which is an important one. I would be happy to talk to anyone in your audience that kind of has ideas about next steps or questions about next steps. I do not have all the answers, but I think I learn a lot from each of those conversations. So people should feel free to reach out to me if they want to talk more on this topic. And as Jason mentioned there, if you do want to get in touch with him, feel free to reach out via the email link in the article here at labiotech.eu that accompanies this podcast. Although if you do a Google search for Dr. Jason Knight, APS, Michigan, you will also be able to very easily find his contact info at the University of Michigan. I do remember many years ago when I was covering sports on the radio, one of my co-hosts at the time getting Michigan, the Wolverines, and Michigan State, the Spartans, mixed up once. I think he may still be on the police wanted list in Ann Arbor. Although I don't think that the FM signal quite reached Michigan from where we were, so they probably didn't know about it. Well, they do now. And that's it for another week. Amazingly, next week's interview is also done, so I can allow myself a few seconds of smugness, although not leap seconds. It's not edited either, so forget the smugness. And when you consider how many times I was interrupted recording the podcast this week, I probably lost more than just 27 seconds. Anyway, thanks a lot for joining us, and I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Take care. And join us next week for another Beyond Biotech.